This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals who are interested in type 2 diabetes. Thank you for listening and welcome to the Diabetes in Primary Care podcast, bringing you medical information about the management of diabetes from a primary care perspective. My name is Fernando Florido and I am a GP in the United Kingdom with an interest in type 2 diabetes. Without further preamble, let's start this episode. In this episode, we will be discussing the section referring to the management of complications of type 2 diabetes NICE guidelines, that is, guideline NG28. This guideline was first published in 2015 and was last updated on the 16th of December 2020. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording and any views or opinions are my own. There are a number of complications that we need to review. Firstly, gastroparesis. We need to consider gastroparesis in patients with erratic blood glucose control or unexplained gastric bloating or vomiting. For patients with vomiting caused by gastroparesis, we need to explain to patients that there isn't strong evidence that any available antiemetic therapy is effective. Some people have had benefits with domperidone, erythromycin or metoclopramide and that the strongest evidence for effectiveness is for domperidone, but prescribers might take into account its safety profile, in particular its cardiac risk and potential drug interactions. For the treatment of vomiting caused by gastroparesis, we can consider alternating the use of erythromycin and metoclopramide, or we can consider domperidone only in exceptional circumstances and that is if domperidone is the only effective treatment, and in accordance with MHRA guidance, there is MHRA safety advice on domperidone and metoclopramide. The summary of MHRA advice on domperidone states that domperidone is now restricted to use in the relief of nausea and vomiting only. It should be used as the lowest effective dose for the shortest possible time, and for a maximum of seven days. And domperidone is now contraindicated in people with conditions where cardiac conduction is or could be impaired, with underlying cardiac diseases such as congestive cardiac failure, or receiving other drugs known to prolong QT intervals, and also patients with severe hepatic impairment. Patients with this condition should have their treatment reviewed and be switched to an alternative treatment if required. Now, the summary of MHRA advice on metoclopramide states that in adults, metoclopramide remains indicated for the treatment of nausea and vomiting. In children aged 1 to 18, metoclopramide should only be used as a second-line option for prevention of postoperative or chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. Metoclopramide is contraindicated in children younger than one year, Metoclopramide should only be prescribed for up to five days. Now, NICE has published an evidence summary on oral erythromycin for gastroparesis in in adults. In summary, it states that erythromycin is licensed for treating and preventing infections. It does not have UK marketing authorization for treating gastroparesis, so this indication is an off-label use of erythromycin. If pharmacological treatment is required, 
Metoclopramide, domperidone or erythromycin may be considered as motility agents. In general, these NICE summaries support decision-making on the use of an unlicensed or off-label medicine for an individual patient, where there are good clinical reasons for its use, particularly when there is no licensed medicine for the condition requiring treatment. The strengths and weaknesses of the relevant evidence are critically reviewed by NICE, but the summary is not NICE guidance. The next complication that we will deal with is painful diabetic neuropathy. There is separate NICE guideline on neuropathic pain in adults. In summary, for the treatment of painful diabetic neuropathy, we can offer a choice of amitriptyline, duloxetine, gabapentin or pregabalin as initial treatment for neuropathic pain. We need to be aware that pregabalin and gabapentin are class 3 controlled substances and therefore we will need to evaluate patients carefully for a history of drug abuse before prescribing and observe patients for development of signs of abuse and dependence. If the initial treatment is not effective or is not tolerated, we can offer one of the remaining three drugs and consider switching again if the second and third drugs tried are also not effective or not tolerated. We should only consider tramadol if acute rescue therapy is needed and we could consider capsaicin cream for people with localised neuropathic pain who wish to avoid or who cannot tolerate oral treatments. Now in respect of the complication autonomic neuropathy we need to consider sympathetic nervous system damage for patients who lose the warning signs of hypoglycemia and also consider autonomic neuropathy affecting the gut in patients with unexplained diarrhea that happens particularly at night. Equally, we need to consider autonomic neuropathy affecting the bladder in patients who have unexplained bladder emptying problems. When using tricyclic and antihypertensive drugs in patients with autonomic neuropathy, we need to be aware of the increased likelihood of side effects such as orthostatic hypotension. The management of autonomic neuropathy will simply be symptomatic. Now another complication of type 2 diabetes is the diabetic foot and there is a specific guidance on preventing and managing foot problems in type 2 diabetes that is NICE guideline on diabetic foot problems. It is very comprehensive and it includes the frequency of assessments and treatment recommendations, mostly podiatric management including diabetic ulcer treatment and charcoal arthropathy management. A very important diabetic complication is diabetic kidney disease. There is a separate NICE guideline on chronic kidney disease in adults. This is a long guideline and it will deserve its own full review. Because of its relevance in type 2 diabetes, I will also give a summary in this episode. Now, chronic kidney disease is defined as abnormalities of kidney function or structure present for more than three months. This includes all people with an, a, with an EGFR of less than 60 on at least two occasions separated by a period of at least 90 days. CKD is classified according to the EGFR and albumin creatinine ratio, or ACR. You will be able to see a link in the podcast script description that will take you to the classification table, or table 1. 
We should also remember that albuminuria can be defined as ACR of more than 3 mg per millimole. Normally, EGFR will be a creatinine-based estimate of EGFR. And for this, we need to apply a correction factor to GFR values estimated under the CKD-EPI creatinine question for people of African-Caribbean or African family origin. And, this, and that is multiply the EGFR value by 1.159. Also, we need to advise people not to eat any meat in the 12 hours before having a blood test for EGFR creatinine, as this will affect the value. Then we will need to confirm an EGFR result of less than 60 in a person not previously tested by repeating the test within two weeks. And then we should consider EGFR cystatin C at initial diagnosis to confirm or rule out CKD in people with an EGFR creatinine between 45 and 59, sustained for at least 90 days without proteinuria or other markers of kidney disease. We should not diagnose CKD in people with an EGFR creatinine of 45 to 59 and an EGFR cystatin C of more than 60 and no other marker of kidney disease. In terms of proteinuria, we need to use urine albumin creatinine ratio or ACR in preference to protein creatinine ratio or PCR because ACR has a greater sensitivity than PCR for low levels of proteinuria. For quantification and monitoring of levels of proteinuria of ACR levels more than 70, PCR can be used as an alternative. However, ACR is the recommended method for people with diabetes. For the initial detection of proteinuria, if the ACR is between 3 and 70, it should be confirmed by a subsequent early morning sample. However, if the initial ACR is 70 or more, a repeat sample is not needed. Remember that a confirmed ACR of 3 or more should be regarded as clinically important proteinuria. In respect of hematuria, we need to remember that when testing for the presence of hematuria, we should use reagent strips rather than urine microscopy. And we should evaluate further if there is a result of 1 plus or more. Also, we should not use urine microscopy to confirm a positive result. We should regard two out of three positive reagent strips tests as confirmation of persistent invisible hematuria. Persistent invisible hematuria with or without proteinuria should prompt investigation for urinary tract malignancy in appropriate age groups. Persistent invisible hematuria in the absence of proteinuria, where malignancy has been excluded, should be followed up annually. Now, who should be tested for CKD? We basically need to offer testing for CKD using the EGFR creatinine and ACR to all patients with type 2 diabetes. When it comes to investigating the cause of CKD and determining the risk of adverse outcomes, we will need to agree a plan to establish the course if it isn't clear. But generally, a renal ultrasound scan is not recommended routinely unless specific concerns are present and there's a separate NICE guideline for that that you could refer to. Now, when it comes to the frequency of monitoring, 
we need to bear in mind that CKD is not progressive in many people, and we can use the classification of CKD to guide the frequency of GFR monitoring, and the link to this table, table 2, will be in the podcast description. Now, we will define accelerated progression of CKD as a sustained decrease in GFR of 25% or more within 12 months, or a sustained decrease in eGFR of 15, also within 12 months. Remember that in people with CKD, the chronic use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs may be associated with progression, and the acute use of these drugs is associated with a reversible decrease in GFR. We should also monitor people for the development of progression of CKD for at least two or three years after acute kidney injury, even if the serum creatinine has returned to baseline. Now, when it comes to patient education, we should offer people with CKD education information tailored to the severity and cause of the CKD, the associated complications and the risk of progression. The general lifestyle advice is simply to take exercise, achieve a healthy weight and to stop smoking. And in terms of dietary interventions, we will need to offer dietary advice about potassium, phosphate, calorie and salt intake appropriate to the severity of CKD. But we should not offer low protein diets to people with CKD. Now the referral criteria for CKD would be GFR less than 30, ACR 70 or more, unless the cause is diabetes and is already appropriately treated, ACR 30 or more with hematuria, a sustained decrease in GFR of 25% or more than 15 within 12 months, a sustained decrease in GFR of 25% or more, or a decrease in GFR of 15 or more within 12 months, hypertension that remains poorly controlled despite the use of at least four antihypertensive drugs, and suspected rare or genetic causes or or suspected renal artery stenosis. People with CKD and renal outflow obstruction should normally be referred to urological services unless urgent medical intervention is required, for example, for the treatment of hyperkalemia, severe uremia, acidosis or fluid overload. Blood pressure control in CKD should be, for patients with CKD alone, we will aim for a target of below 140 over 90. But in people with CKD and diabetes, and also in people with CKD and an ACR of 70 or more, the blood pressure target will be below 130 over 80. So that is 130 over 80 in type 2 diabetes with CKD. In terms of choice of antihypertensive treatment, we will offer an ACE inhibitor or ARB to people with CKD and either diabetes and ACR of 3 or more, hypertension and ACR of 30 or more, or an ACR of 70 or more, irrespective of hypertension or cardiovascular disease. We will not routinely offer an ACE inhibitor or, or an ARB to people with CKD if their pretreatment serum potassium concentration is greater than 5. And we will stop the ACE inhibitor or ARB if the serum potassium concentration increases to 6 or more and other drugs known to promote hyperkalemia have been discontinued. 
Remember that if there's a decrease in EGFR less than 25% or an increase in the serum creatinine of less than 30% after starting or increasing the dose of the ACE inhibitor or ARB, we should repeat the test after one or two weeks and we would not modify the dose if the change in the EGFR remains less than 25% or the change in serum creatinine remains less than 30%. However, if these changes are more, we should investigate other, other causes of deterioration in renal function, such as volume depletion or concurrent medication, for example, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. And if no other cause for the deterioration in renal function is found, we will need to stop the ACE inhibitor or ARB or reduce the dose to a previously tolerated dose. We also need to remember that CKD patients are at an increased risk of cardiovascular disease and therefore we will need to offer antiplatelet drugs to people with CKD for the secondary prevention of cardiovascular disease. But we will need to be aware of the increased risk of bleeding. Finally, detailed advice on the management of CKD, mineral and bone disorders is beyond the scope of this guideline. But remember that we should not routinely offer vitamin D supplementation to manage or prevent CKD, mineral and bone disorders. But we will offer cholecalciferol or ergocalciferol to treat proven vitamin D deficiency. And we should offer bisosonates if indicated for the prevention and treatment of osteoporosis in people with an EGFR of, of 30 or more. The next complication of type 2 diabetes to talk about is erectile dysfunction. And this is simply to say that we should offer men with type 2 diabetes the opportunity to discuss erectile dysfunction as part of their annual review. We should consider a phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitor to treat problematic erectile dysfunction initially choosing the drug with the lowest acquisition cost and taking into account any contraindications. Obviously, we will refer men if the treatment has been unsuccessful. And the last complication that we will discuss is eye disease in type 2 diabetes. We need to remember that when a patient is diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, GPs should immediately refer them to the local eye screen service. We should arrange emergency review by an ophthalmologist for any sudden loss of vision, rubeosis, iridis, pre-retinal or vitreous hemorrhage and retinal detachment. And finally, we should refer to an ophthalmologist if there's any large, sudden, unexplained drop in visual acuity. This is the end of this episode of the Diabetes in Primary Care podcast. You can find it on your favourite podcast provider. You will also be able to find links to the guidelines mentioned in the podcast description. Thank you for listening.